0: Good morning, everybody. And finally, we are at the end of the week. It is Friday, 14th of April. Easter is over and the markets have behaved themselves really rather nicely over Easter. It has to be said, every year we wish for a quiet bull market. And that's certainly what we've had. Consider that a month ago, we were in the middle of a US financial crisis, wondering whether we were going to start a new GFC. And here we are, back in uptrend. This is the Marcus Today members podcast. General advice only, not to be confused with advice suited to your personal financial circumstances. And Wall Street had a good night, as you know, last night, up 383 points. It has had a steady recovery from the lows of the last month. And our market, which started rather floppily, the futures were only mildly higher, I think, this morning, up 15 points. And today... We are now up 24. NASDAQ was up 1.99% overnight. That's 2%. That's its best day in a couple of months. And as you know, interest rates drive technology stocks. And what we saw overnight was a PPI number, the March PPI number, producer price indexes, index number. This is Factory gate prices, so input prices. So the PPI number, not as important as the CPI number, but after Wednesday night's CPI number in the US, which came in slightly below expectations, the March PPI number was down 0.5% month on month, below expectations for a fall of 0.1%. That's the second straight monthly contraction. And the odds of the Fed continuing to raise rates drift even further. And to make that point, in my section today, you will see two charts that are simply not consistent with each other. One is US CPI, 12-month percentage change, and that is so clearly now peaked and is coming off the top. And the chart below it is the US policy rate, which is official interest rates, which are still racking higher. And US policy is clearly not consistent with inflation now peaking. So I ask you, or the section is in Titled, why are we worrying about interest rates well we're not said Henry to me this morning and these charts say it all In fact, if you look at the CME FOMC, website, which shows you the odds deduced from the bond market of Fed rate changes at each FOMC meeting over the next year, if you look at that, after the next rate rise, which seems to be a foregone conclusion on May the 3rd, after that rate rise, the bond market is now suggesting rates will peak. In other words, the Fed will pause. If they do that at 5 to 5.25%, then there is now, according to the bond market, a 98.7% chance that rates will be cut again by the December meeting, in other words, by the end of the year. And there's a 90.8% chance that they will be lower than they are now by the end of the year. So the bond market is anticipating a pause and peak and maybe even a cut in bond rates or official interest rates rather this year. And that's the point I'm making today, in which case we shouldn't be worrying so much about interest rates. And one of the holdings we've got in the strategy portfolio, which is SLF, which is the State Street ASX 200 Listed Property Fund, its benchmark is the ASX 200 REIT sector. If you look at that index, it's a good barometer of interest rate sentiment, and it has dropped from the beginning of this year. If you remember at the beginning of this year, the Fed came back and started to reiterate their hawkishness and that's been the theme all year until these recent CPI and PPI numbers which suggest that inflation has peaked and that the Fed are close to backing off and the REIT sector and the SLF ETF have started to bottom and that's passing a message that the equity market as well is beginning to get the idea that interest rates have peaked and interest rate sensitive sectors are going better in which case although it's underperformed this year this REIT this SLF ETF ETF exposed to the REIT sector is now looking more of a buy than a sell, so we will continue to hold it even though it hasn't done very well this year. It is still now, or it is now, in uptrend and bottoming. Right, as a bit of a catch-up as I'm back at my desk today, I have gone through all the holdings we've got in the strategy portfolio, have a look at those, a bit of a description of the ETFs we currently hold, which is a simple exposure to the US and Australian markets. We hold A200 HNDQ, that's exposed to the NASDAQ 100 index, and IHVV, which is exposed to the S&P 500 index. And both of those are hedged to the Aussie dollar. And have a look at the chart of the US dollar index in the Marcus Take section today. These ETFs, because they're hedged, do better if the Aussie dollar goes up against the US dollar. And have a look at the index or the US dollar index. It's going down. So we've done the right thing being in the hedged ETFs since October last year when the market bottomed. In fact, we really rather nailed the timing it has to be said. And as I've said a thousand times, if the average return from the Australian market is 5.77% plus dividends, well, by timing this ETF, we've made 7.9% so far in about six months. So doing okay. These things are never going to be fabulous. They are sector not sector, their market indices, which are by definition low volatility. Two little observations of the ETFs we hold. One is that the A200 ETF, which is the Better Shares Australia 200 ETF, tracks the ASX 200. They recently dropped their management free fee from 0.07% to 0.04%. And they advertise by saying still the lowest cost Australian shares ETF. So you can get an exposure to the ASX 200 now for 0.04% percent per annum, not quite your two percent per annum, which some fund managers charge you. And interesting that better shares see this ETF as a bit of a Trojan horse, probably to other better shares ETFs. So A200, the ASX 200 for 0.04 percent. If you had told a fund manager that 20 years ago, let alone 40 years ago, that a computer is going to offer investors a market index exposure for 0.04%. Most fund managers would have packed up their books and got into landscape gardening. The other observation was in the description of the S&P 500 ETF. iShares write, this product is likely to be appropriate for a consumer seeking capital growth with a high to very high risk return profile. Can you believe that the ETF industry is describing an S&P 500 exposure as very high risk. I don't know who sets the bar for risky, but when it comes to funds management and the descriptors, no doubt whoever comes up with them is wrapped in cotton wool in a padded cell somewhere. Because to equity investors like you and I, the S&P 500 index is certainly not high to very high risk in the terms of an industry balanced fund which holds cash property bonds fixed interest domestic equities and international equities in those terms financial advisors and planners always describe all equities as high risk or aggressive when really to people like us with a more normal risk profile it is not necessarily high risk at all Right, other things today. I have put in the US results season calendar. Tonight we have results from JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citigroup. This, of course, will be very important for our Macquarie portfolio. Our Macquarie portfolio is doing okay. I think we've timed this banking crisis in the US really rather nicely. All the charts suggest we do. You can see those in the Marcus take section today. And Macquarie's looking okay. These results will impact on sentiment towards Macquarie, which is our only large investment bank. They have full-year results. Macquarie has full-year results on May the 5th. Let's see how we go tonight, but if the results aren't tickety-boo in the US, we will have to consider avoiding the Macquarie results risk by getting out before results on May the 5th. Anyway, we will see. Just to note that the Macquarie P.E. is now 14.3 times. The long-term average, 10-year average is 15.5. It's now got a P.E. below average. Yield 3.85% plus, I'm afraid, just 40% franking. You don't hold Macquarie for income. Now, in the ideas portfolio, as you know, we've got three dividend strips, ANZ, Westpac and NAB, ahead of their results coming up next month. And we again have timed them for the lows during this recent banking crisis. Just a note, all of them fell over this morning briefly after the Bank of Queensland announced one week ahead of their results that they're taking a $200 million goodwill write-down on an acquisition they made in 2007, and they are taking a $60 million cost for putting in place a risk management program at the suggestion of regulators who told them that they or who demanded they have a material uplift in their risk and compliance management. So that's cost them $60 million, a write-down $200 million. That means results next week, they say statutory profit will be $4 million instead of last year's $212 million. And they also expect a lower dividend. No fun for Bank of Queensland. But the market doesn't seem to care. The share price this morning initially fell 6%. And as I speak, the share price is unchanged. So it's recovered from the sentiment from that does look to me like all they've really done is a bit of accounting chicanery just so their results don't shock anybody next week. UBS, by the way, has a sell recommendation on Bank of Queensland this morning saying they prefer the major banks as we do as well. I have put in charts of all the banks we hold in the ideas section today and charts of their 10-year PE history. And just to point out that all of them, have a look at the charts,